Abundant Life, how are you? Good to see you today. Love the 9.30. You are my favorite. You are my favorite by far. You are my favorite service of the day. And so I am so glad you're here. We're in a series that we are calling With. And in this series, we're talking about how we relate to God. And I hope that if you, if you have not been here, that you'll go back and that you'll listen to the previous two messages because we're talking about this, this thing of relating with God. God created you and me to be in a relationship with him. God is not into religion. Religion is all about us doing stuff for God. It's, it's all about us trying to gain God's approval. It's about rituals. It's about thinking God will love us more if we do stuff or if we do the right things or, or whatever. And that is not what God is about. God is into a relationship with us. But being the human beings that we are, so easy for us to get in there and mess it up. And so in this uh, series, we've been looking at these different ways of relating, relating to God that really are not what God designed and it's not what God desires for us. For example, uh, we're talking, last week we talked about how oftentimes we relate to God from a posture of being under God. And we talked about relating to God from a posture of being over God. And so under God, it's, it's all about appeasing him. It's all about appeasing this God in the hopes that he will bless us in return and will spare us from calamity. That's life under God. And then we looked at life over God. Life over God is all about you and me actually marginalizing God and in some cases literally and, and actually pushing him out of the picture altogether because once we have the immutable laws and the principles that he's given to us that he set in place, who needs God anymore? Because once you have the manual, who needs the mechanic? And so we can actually be guilty of living life over God and marginalizing him and pushing him out of the picture altogether. I don't know if you related to any of these so far. The two we're talking about today, we're going to be looking at uh, life from God and life for God. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means to live life with God. What does it mean to live life from God? Life from God is about God supplying whatever it is we need or desire or want. It's about him supplying that for us. Every semester, Scott McKnight, who is a professor of religious studies at North Park College in uh, the Chicago area, gives his students a test on the first day of class of his Jesus class. And this test begins with a series of questions about what the students believe and think Jesus is like. Is he outgoing? Is he introverted? Is he uh, anxious? Is he worrisome? Is he funny? Is he moody? And all of these questions, it's a 24-question questionnaire. 
that then is followed by another questionnaire with the wording slightly altered in which the students answer questions about their own personality. McKnight is not the only one who administers this exam. There are lots of other people in his profession who do it as well. But the results are remarkably consistent. This is what they've discovered. Everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. It's very interesting. McKnight said that the test results also suggest that even though we, we like to think that we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what French philosopher Voltaire said about three centuries ago when he says, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. The Jesus personality test functions a lot like the inkblot test that was devised years ago by Herman Rorschach uh, to use in psychotherapy. All of you have heard of the inkblot test? Anybody here taken the inkblot test? I've never, I've never taken one. But you know the question, they have somebody look at an inkblot and then they ask the question, what do you see? The ink really doesn't resemble anything. But whatever the patient sees is really just a projection of what, his, uh, what he already has in his own mind. And so if the subject sees a beautiful flower, then they um, conclude that the person is normal. If the person sees a skull with um, blood dripping out of the eye sockets, well, then that's why they have speed dial for the little men in white suits. <clears throat> and so what happens is once we understand our own human tendency to give God uh, a makeover in our own image, then asking a person, what is God like? really can be like a religious inkblot test because what happens is we tend to project our own identities onto God. We've actually seen this already in the life under God posture. Uh, again, where it's viewed, the, the life under God posture is viewed as a capricious deity and we have to appease this deity and that works really well because we appease the deity to, to garner blessings and to avoid calamity. That works really well in a, in a culture that's governed by superstition. And so that's the way they would see God. We saw it in the life over God posture, which is the opposite view of God, where, God, again, God has given to us these, these rational principles and these laws, and, uh, and, and God is really nothing more than like a watchmaker who wound up the universe and steps back, and now he's uninvolved in the affairs of daily life. And so this, this uh, view of God clearly reflects the uh, post-enlightenment age that gave rise to secularism, deism, and atheism. But in our culture today, okay, in the contemporary culture in which you and I live today, Western culture, we live in an age that is governed by consumerism. Would, would anybody agree with me on that? That we live in an age that's governed by consumerism. Uh, to paraphrase Madonna, we live in a material world, and we are material girls and boys. <laughs> And so, and so when we look at the God inkblot, most contemporary people project their own consumer values onto God. Essentially, 
What people do today is make God in their own image. What most of us hold in in common, what most of us in this room hold in common today is, is this consumer worldview. Uh, therefore, we believe in a God who exists to satisfy our desires and our needs. Now, I know most people here would not say that's the way I relate to God. Nobody here is going to say that my relation to God is he provides what I want and what I need. But that's what we do. I mean, just listen to yourself the next time you pray. I'll almost guarantee you that the first thing that comes out of your mind is a, is a request. Okay? And again, it's nothing wrong with that. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But the essence of the life from God posture is simply this, that God exists to supply what we need and what we desire. And there's a lot of merit to this, okay? There's a lot of reason why you and I would relate to God that way because, after all, God asks us to ask of him things, right? I mean, everything we have, it comes from God, right? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, God, the Lord created the heavens and he stretched them out and he created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone. He gives life to everyone who walks on earth. And so everything you and I have, it comes from God. James chapter 1, go all the way to the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 17, uh, James says, every good, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So really, everything we have comes from God. And, and even Jesus, over and over again, instructs us to ask God for whatever we need, right? And you can go to Luke chapter 11, and you'll see one example. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So over and over, God tells us to ask. But the life from God posture has a tendency, okay, get this, the, the life from God posture has a tendency to overemphasize this aspect of our relationship with God. It makes receiving God's gifts the entirety of our relationship, and that's where this posture begins to break down. I know it's true in my life. It, it, it's like, and I'm trying to move from that to where my, my relationship with God is characterized by more than just give me, give me, give me. I mean, think about it. In, in the most extreme form, the life from God posture is, is really seen in the prosperity gospel which you hear preached so much today, the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. In fact, one of the uh, proponents of this type of gospel is quoted in Time Magazine. The headline in Time Magazine asks this question, does God want you to be rich? I'd love to sit and have that conversation with a number of you and just to see what you would say. Does God want you to be rich? Well, this is what this televangelist said. Who would want to get in on something where you are miserable, poor, broke, and ugly, and you have to muddle through life until you get to heaven? I believe God wants us to have nice things, end quote. Now, perhaps this televangelist believe, believes that God wants her to have nice things because she has nice things. And she has nice things. Uh, she was actually investigated by the United States Senate because of her opulent lifestyle. 
Of course, uh, fueling this, this uh, consumption, this consumeristic culture in which we live are the 3,500 desire-inducing advertisements that we are exposed to every single day. All of this just fuels our culture and plays on this insatiable desire to consume. Let me show you how this fits into all of these different ways of relating to God. For example, in the life under God posture, the center of the universe is a capricious God that we need to appease. Okay, that's the life under God posture. The life over God posture, the center of the universe is a set of immutable laws and principles that, that we control. That's the life over God. In the life from God posture, which we're looking at right now, guess what is at the center of the universe? You. Self. And you see this so much in our society today. I'm at the center of the universe and everyone and everything revolves around me. You know anybody? They say, yeah, I know. Yeah, okay, we all do. In fact, most of us, if not every single one of us, say, yeah, I know somebody. I look at him every day when I get up. <laughs> okay? And, and I'm the center of, of the universe and, and everything, everyone, including God, including God, orbits around me. That's in part why when a marriage no longer is satisfying, that you walk out. That's in part why people jump from church to church to church to church to church because when this church no longer meets my need, I'll just go to the next one down the street. And you can apply that to hundreds of things in our culture today. Like everything else, when, even when, when, when God revolves around me, when he's no longer meeting my purposes, then I walk away. What have you done for me lately, God? Because we begin to see God as an instrument, a means to an end, and we seek to use him to achieve our own desires. Now, I am not saying that it's wrong to ask God for stuff, okay? Somebody repeat after me. Everybody repeat after me. It's not wrong to ask God for stuff. Okay, it's not wrong. In fact, God invites us to ask him for stuff. But, but when this becomes the entirety of how we relate to God, we're placing ourselves at the center of the universe and we're expecting God to then orbit around us. And we're insisting that the creator submit to the creature. And as I said back, way back in the beginning of this series, fear is central to the human condition today, to the human experience in this world. And every religious system today is an attempt to deliver us and to mitigate those fears by seeking control. And rather than delivering us from fear, consumerism tries to distract us from our fear. Consumerism and, and life uh, from God, it may numb us to our pain and to our fear, but it does not remove us from it. How many of you remember uh, C.S. Lewis's comment when he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. He says it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Well, God may be shouting with his megaphone through our pain, but consumerism would have us put on our headphones and crank up the volume on our iPods. You see, it's in our comfort, it's in our affluence that we easily forget God, the one who can truly deliver us from our fears. And this is not a new temptation. This is not new with us. God warned his people over and over again about the dangers of comfort and, and the dangers of, of affluence and, and all of this. When the people cried out for God's deliverance in Egypt, you, you remember that. They sought after him. He heard their cries. And then after rescuing his people from slavery, it becomes apparent that their hearts are now set more on God's gifts than they are set on him. And so as he led them out to freedom, to a good land, to a fruitful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God repeatedly cautioned them to not forget him once they were comfortable. And so you come to Deuteronomy chapter 11 and you'll see, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied and when you build fine houses and you settle down and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increases and, and, and all of your stuff is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, God's prediction came true. It proved to be accurate again and again. Israel turned away from God in times of prosperity and in times of peace. And they became enamored with his good gifts. And these comforts distracted the people from seeking God himself. Take the story of the prodigal son. It's a great example. Another example of, of the life from God posture. You remember the story. Jesus told this story about a son who demanded his inheritance from his father before the father had even passed away, which was, which was a request that was so disrespectful that it, uh, it actually was a capital crime. But the father allowed the young man to take his stuff and take half of the family fortune before leaving home um, for a distant country where he squandered everything that was given to him in reckless living. You see, the son valued his father's gifts more than he valued a relationship with the father. And ultimately, the son uh, only wanted what his wealthy father could give him. And once he possessed it, then the relationship was no longer necessary. So you can see the danger that, that rests within a life from God posture. And it's so possible in this affluent culture in which we live today. What about life for God? Life for God, and this is the last one. Life for God. Life for God is about expending. It's about expending my life in service for God. And of all the four postures, I think this might be the most difficult one. I had someone to come up to me and said, none of the other three postures hit me until you got to this one. And I can understand that. Now, of all the postures, I think this might be the hardest to get our minds around and our hands around. But for those of us who follow Jesus, especially for those of us who devoted ourselves to Christian ministry or involved in ministry and stuff like that. Let me ask a question. How many of you are raised in a Christian home? Raise your hand. How many of you grew up raised in a A lot of you. Okay, a lot of you were. I was. I was raised in a Christian home. 
Uh, and, and, and it was at a time and it was at a place where all of the kids who were just about a year or two years older than me, when they graduated from high school, they went to Bible college. Okay, there's, and there's a lot of reasons for that, which I don't have time to get into. But when I graduated from high school, I had no earthly idea of what I was going to do with my life. I literally had no idea what to do. And I thought, well, I'll just do what everybody else has been doing. I'll go off to Bible college. And that's, in, in fact, that's essentially how I ended up in ministry. Okay, people want to know, how did God call you into ministry? Believe me, it was no lightning bolt, okay, that God used to call me into ministry. I slid in by accident. I mean, I didn't, walk, I didn't even know where I was. And, and so that's where I got there because I thought, hey, okay, what else could be more pleasing to God than to go into ministry? What else could be more pleasing to the church leaders? What else could be more pleasing to my parents than to go into ministry, okay? And then when I got there, I realized that there's these some guys there who were like 15 and 20 and 25 years older than me who left secular jobs to go into ministry, and they were highly celebrated because they made that decision to give their life to God in a more significant way. And it's his whole life for God. In fact, I got to tell you, just recently, um, our older son returned home from the mission field after being on the mission field for about 10 years. And, um, and so he, he uh, went into a, a new career, a secular career, the secular marketplace. And, and we were talking to him and we were just talking about how proud we were of him. And his response to us was very telling. He said something like, thank you for letting me know that I appreciate you saying that because he says, I was afraid that you would be upset that I, would, I didn't stay in ministry. And I wonder, you know, where do we get these ideas? I mean, we inadvertently, I know, sent the message somewhere that, you know, God really loves you because you've gone into the mission field, because you, you know, you didn't go into secular work. You went and you gave your life for God and you made your life significant for God. And somehow he got this message that, well, now it wasn't as significant, and it could be that maybe God didn't love him as much as he once did. You see, the problem is, if we're not careful, eventually what motivates us is not God's unconditional love, but is how much we feel like we can accomplish for him. You see, life under God, in the life under God posture, the, the capricious God or God's is at the center of the universe. In the life over God posture, it's the immutable principles and divine laws that's at the center of the universe. In the life from God, you're at the center of the universe. But when you come to this life for God posture, it's very subtle, but the mission of God is at the center. Not God, but the mission of God is at the center. It's the mission that's above everything else, even family. Even family. That's why so many in, in the generation before me wound up with successful churches but broken families because the mission for God is the most important thing, not a relationship with God. Now, obviously, it is not wrong for you and me to be on mission for God, okay? I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to go on mission for him, okay? This church has a mission statement, Okay, uh, Paul himself uh, referred to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Listen to how Paul stated his mission. This is the force of this. He says in Acts 20, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I mean, no one could accuse Paul of, of not being serious about his mission for God. 
And even as strongly as he states it here, upon further investigation, the highest value for Paul, what drove his passion for mission wasn't the mission itself. It was his relationship with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing knowing Christ Jesus, underline that word, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That word know, it is not, it doesn't mean an intellectual knowledge because a lot of people have an intellectual knowledge about God, but they don't know him experientially and relationally and intimately. And that's what this word means. That's why, that's why Paul could be at perfect peace and could have total joy no matter if he was preaching out on a street corner or uh, chained up in jail somewhere. Because it wasn't about that. It was about his relationship with God. His relationship with Jesus preceded his work for Jesus. I mean, the danger of confusing these two things, it's very real. It's very real. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount... Jesus gave this haunting description of those who accomplished a great deal for God, but they ultimately did not desire Jesus himself. In Matthew 7, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we drive out demons in your name and didn't we perform any miracles and didn't we build big churches in your name, Jesus? And didn't we, didn't we do all of this? And Jesus says plainly to them, I don't even know who you are. I don't even know who you are. Get away from me, you evil doers. You see, putting God's mission before and over God is probably the, the subtlest way of dethroning God and replacing him with something we can control. But behind the life for God posture is this belief that, that one's value is determined by what they achieve. And God, he must love me so much. God has to love me more than he loves you because, I mean, I'm the one who left my family back in Virginia and moved here and started this church and sacrificed, and he's got to love me more than you because look what I did here, you know? And, and, and we begin thinking that God loves us because of what we've done. And, and really, nothing could be further from the truth. Go back, let's go back to the prodigal son for just a moment. When the, when the son returned home penniless and smelling like pigs, his father was overjoyed, and he ran to meet him, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, right, through a big party? But that's only half of the story. The father also had an older son who was quite different than the younger son, very different. He was reliable, he was obedient, and he was hardworking. But when he heard that the, the, his brother had returned home and that his dad had thrown him this party, he became incensed over the whole thing. And he even refused to go into the celebration, refused to go in. And true to his character, when the father discovered that the eldest son had not come in, the father went out to meet him and begged him to come in to the party. But he wouldn't come. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 15. Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But now when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home... You kill the fatted calf for him. You can hear the, the anger in his voice. And these two, these two sons clearly represent the two postures that we're looking at today. The greedy younger son illustrates the core characteristics of life from God. 
This is what I want, God. I want it from you. And the loyal oldest son exemplifies life for God. Notice where the oldest son found his significance. In that phrase, all of these years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands. So I expect you to do something for me. See, the oldest son, he lived for his father and, and, and for his service he expected a reward. And in this way, he really wasn't that much different than the younger son. Neither boy was particularly interested in a relationship with the father. What both of them wanted was what the father had for them. And you see, what's interesting is Jesus told this parable at a gathering of Pharisees who were the devoted religious leaders of the day, people who, grew, uh, who drew a great deal of significance by what they did for God. Now, was Jesus trying to tell them that it's wrong to serve? Was Jesus trying to tell them that it's wrong to be obedient? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just that when, when the problem comes, when we find our significance and our worth in serving or obedience. If you want to discover what God really cares the most about, just look at his uh, words in, in Luke chapter 15, verse 31 and 32. He said to his son, son, you've, you've always been with me. You're always with me. And, and all that is mine, it's yours. It's all yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this younger brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. To paraphrase, now he's back with me. He's back with me. You see, while the sons were fixated on what God could give to them, the father was fixated on the sons. Now, what's the shortcoming of life from God? Let me just quickly give these to you. Shortcomings of life from God. Here's the first one. This posture doesn't ask us to change. It just doesn't ask us to change. What we desire, what we seek, what we do, how we live, all of it is shaped by consumerism, and and our lives are not disrupted. Our values and our way of life are simply projected onto God. And so life from God is nothing more than consumerism with a Jesus sticker slapped on the bumper. Here's number two. God's value is determined by his usefulness. God has no inherent inherent value. Like everything else in the consumer worldview, once it no longer serves me, it's no longer useful and it's discarded. Here's the shortcomings of the life for God. God's mission is put ahead of God himself. God's gifts and his blessings and his work, they're important, but neither can nor they should replace God as our focus. Here's number two. Our value is determined by what we achieve for God. When we start relating to God from this posture of, of, of for God and what I can do for God, that's where we find our significance. And now you can't stop working hard enough. You can't get involved in enough ministries. You can't go to enough Bible studies. You can't attend too many classes because this relentless drive to prove our worth quickly becomes a destructive force in our lives. And then number three, this, this posture, it takes our fear of insignificance or you could say our, our fear or our low self-esteem or your, your poor sense of self-worth. It takes all of that and it just throws gasoline on it. And you work harder. You drive yourself more because I've got to get God to love me. I've got to prove my worth. I've got to make sure he loves me. And you drive yourself crazy living under that. Can I just say something to you? When, when you are motivated by anything other 
than the unconditional love of God for you. Then you'll always be living under a sense of guilt and fear and insignificance. But when you are motivated purely by the unconditional love of God, then you begin relating to God in appropriate ways. And he, he removes the guilt, he removes the fear, he removes the, the burden of following him. In Matthew chapter 11, we close with this last week. Let's read it one more time. Read this with me. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head as we close out today. And God, my prayer today as we've, as we've looked at these two ways, I, I pray, God, that, that you would help us to relate to you in a way that's different than just what we can get from you. God, would you forgive us for just asking you for stuff and expecting you to just give it to us as if, as if you revolved around us. Would you forgive us for that? Forgive me of that. God, would, would you forgive us when we get this sense of significance out of what we do for you? My guess, there could even be people who maybe even feel that because they're here in church today that, God, you probably love them more. God, would you help them? Would you help all of us to understand that you, you love us unconditionally? It's not because, it's not if, it's not when. You just love us. Help us, God, to know that so that we can live life with you. God, continue to help us understand what that means, just to live life with you, not to prove anything or not to get anything from you. Some of you here today, you've never given your heart to Jesus and you've never opened your heart. Jesus came to this earth so that he could, could love you and so that he could forgive you of your sin and provide a home eternal with you in heaven. And while you may not understand everything there is to know about that, what you do need to understand is that God loves you, that he gave his son to die for you, he took his place for you on the cross. And if you invite him to be your Lord and Savior, then it's the blood of Jesus that covers your sin and God sees you as whole, sees you as righteous. If that's your desire today, I'm going to invite you to pray with me this prayer. And for those of you who've made the decision to follow Jesus, would you also pray with me? And I'm going to ask you to pray this aloud. Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Come into my heart. I surrender my life to you today. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.